Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day, welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. This podcast is brought to you each week with the aid and expertise of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Victoria has now been plunged into even harsher lockdown restrictions to control its deadly COVID-19 second wave outbreak, while most of the rest of the country is at this stage largely in good shape. The Garden State's regression began with hotel quarantine a clear state government responsibility, but the deaths are occurring in the now-besieged Commonwealth-administered nursing home sector. This is a human tragedy of underappreciated scale, and I'd suggest to you one that would not be tolerated if it were occurring in a younger cohort. Canberra funds the largely privately-run aged care sector and regulates it also. It beggars belief that after the woeful Newmarch House disaster a number of months ago, this supremely vulnerable sector was not better equipped for infection control with improved workforce training, workforce replacement plans and full emergency evacuation protocols. Politically, this could be very damaging to Scott Morrison despite early applauders. Remember, Kevin Rudd took good decisions during the GFC, but weathered enormous damage for the bits of the policy that went wrong, particularly home insulation. Dan Andrews too, who's riding high before the quarantine debacle, uh, but he may not recover from the, uh, the problem that uh, he's now got. Successful programs and hundreds of billions of fiscal stimulus will not rate a mention next to tens or potentially hundreds of deaths if the virus ripping through aged care homes is not stopped in its tracks. The federal government has been slow to act lest it be seen to become responsible for nursing home deaths. Yet someone in the system is responsible and plainly that someone is the federal government. Well, that's my view anyway. These are my thoughts. Let's get some from Dr. Maria Teflaga from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, do you think I've been too harsh there on the Commonwealth Government? Well, yeah, Mark, I think the question you have asked is actually a very important one. And of course, there are sort of all kinds of reasons why the government may have been slow to act. One may be, as you sort of suggested, um, that they were unwilling to sort of step forward and take uh, responsibility uh, for acting quickly because that would then imply a level of political responsibility that they would be taking on as well. Um, Another might simply be a failure to plan, um, you know, for whatever reason internally um, or another set of reasons could be simply that the government was planning or attempting to plan but couldn't uh, overcome coordination problems. Yeah, look, I think it's fair uh, to, to say that all governments, state and federal, have made errors in this process and all kinds of things are being exposed to us. We're seeing 
the nature of the labour market exposed, you know, with the high casualization of the of the workforce, a lot of precarious workers and so forth. That's become a feature. Uh, we're seeing um, the the problems that have that have occurred in regulation. Uh, we're seeing problems with uh, police, uh, with the control of borders. Uh, you know, which. Uh, the closing of state borders, which of course we know is uh, dubious uh, constitutionally, that's yet to be um, decided by the High Court. Um, so th- there's a whole range of kind of new challenges, in a sense, um, that are being faced by governments, and state and federal governments have made a lot of really good decisions and handled themselves really well, but they've also made some mistakes. And I think the problem we see with with the aged care sector is that this population is excruciatingly vulnerable. You know, the pe- people who are there exposed to this virus are far more likely to suffer serious illness and death than other cohorts in the population. And after the New March House debacle in, in New South Wales... Um, it is regrettable that some more work wasn't done, more preparatory work wasn't done for the the risk of an outbreak, as we've seen happen in Victoria. I mean, it's important to note that the outbreak in Victoria happened as a result of the breakdown of hotel quarantine, which was explicitly a state responsibility. And the Victorian government can't walk away from that. But the fact is the pathogens got out into the community it's exposed these people in the aged care sector, which also has a highly casualised workforce and some workers going from multiple, you know, working in multiple aged care sites. Um, and we know the government, the federal government, has long been aware of difficulties in the aged care sector, which is why there's a Royal Commission going on at the moment. So, you know, it's easy to be harsh and it's easy to to to, uh, uh, to, to play the blame game, but there are legitimate considerations or, or questions here that will need to be addressed. And uh, as I say, the, the uh, aged care sector is um, one where the populations are extremely vulnerable. So it's life and death. Well, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I guess the point I was really trying to make is that uh, I think it actually really does matter why the decision was made the way it was. I mean, if it was for political reasons, you know, that I think is actually far more serious and concerning if it was, uh, you know, um, a failure to coordinate, right, you know, that they were they were trying to plan but just couldn't get everything together in time. Likewise, you know, a failure to plan is also really kind of serious and I think the, the nature of these decisions is important um, and we will no doubt get to um, the bottom of that uh, in, very very soon because of the absolute seriousness of this situation, just as you've said, for the reasons you've said. Hmm. Now also with us today are two people who these days studiously rise above such squalid political arguments um, and uh, occupy lofty positions in their own right. Julie Bishop is a household name in Australian politics, a long-time deputy leader of the Liberal Party, former long-serving foreign minister, and of course these days, Chancellor of this great university. She joins us from Perth, a state not at all like North Korea at the moment, but perhaps easier to get into. Welcome, Julie. Thank you, and I bring greetings from the People's Republic of Western Australia. (laughs) That's right, which is uh, subject to a... um, a, a high court uh, ruling in respect of an application that Clive Palmer has to uh, declare the closing of state borders unconstitutional. I guess we'll see how that plays out. We notice that the federal government has now withdrawn from active participation in that case. But uh, I guess you're a lawyer as well. You might have your own opinion on that. You may wish to keep your own counsel on it. I don't know. But uh, Well, I think, Mark, just listening to your um, commentary about the aged care sector, what this pandemic has shown is that no government anywhere in the world has all the answers. There was, in fact, no global framework in place, no playbook, no blueprint. Despite years of planning and preparation at the WHO and elsewhere, each government at the end of the day had to work out what works or what doesn't work in battling this global pandemic. And the aged care sector is multi-layered, incredibly complex. You've got the public sector probably more aged care homes owned by state governments in Victoria than anywhere else. There's the private sector, the for-profit, not-for-profit, faith-based, ethnic-based, community homes. And this one-size-fits-all regulatory framework has always been challenging, but it really has exposed the shortcomings. And as you said, residents of aged care homes are particularly vulnerable. But I think one of the best initiatives we've seen in Australia has been the forming of a national cabinet and trying to get that level of coordination across 
state and federal governments, something that I didn't ever think I'd see in my lifetime, having attended one too many COAG meetings, to actually see a national <laughs> cabinet is uh, something of which Australia can be pretty proud. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that it's been uh, an extraordinary success uh, and it has dissolved all kinds of frictions that, uh, now whether they're permanently dissolved or not is another matter, but it's certainly for the time being dissolved a lot of frictions that have bedeviled this country. Someone who un- understands a lot about uh, these administrative questions and the interface, I suppose, between politics and administration is uh, Associate or Honorary Professor Andrew Podger. He's editor of a new book from the ANU Press called Designing Governance Structures for, for Performance and Accountability, Developments in Australia and Greater China. And Andrew is uh, joining us today. He's from the Australia and New Zealand School of Government here at the ANU. Andrew, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Hi, Mark, and hi, Julie. Couple now, of co- couple of comments before, before we get on to the book. It was yeah. uh, uh, on there, uh, having been... Secretary of the Health Department for six years, uh, I have a lot of sympathy with the, those who are trying to grapple with the problems both on the, the, the direct health side but also on the aged care side. Uh, aged care is always a very difficult, complex area. Julie mentioned that Victoria has uh, the highest number of Victorian-owned uh, run aged care, but it's only 20% of the homes in Victoria uh, from the state government, uh, and that's the highest in Australia. Uh, the vast majority of aged care homes are run by not-for-profits. There are a number of for-profits. Uh, they receive Commonwealth money, uh, but and they are regulated by the Commonwealth. But because of that array of people who are involved, to talk about the ability to have direct, immediate control, it's, the world isn't really quite like that. So it is hard to do, I think it is fair to say that the resources for aged care are insufficient. That has always been the case. I think aged care is a lot better than it was 20 years ago, but it has a long way to go. Uh, but I would have some sympathy with those saying, you can't just direct and make something happen in such a, uh, a complex and multi-organised uh, arrangement. Just be aware of that. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I'll exclude Maria from this, but do you, do you think, um, that as, for, you know, for the rest, the other three of us here on this podcast, uh, at least I think are starting to appreciate more what it's like to get older. Um, do you think there's a, a kind of just an unspoken or an unconscious bias away from the elderly? Um, that, that also bedevils this. I mean, going to my comment in the introduction, would we accept this level of morbidity and mortality in any other cohort? It would be an outrage, surely. It's a, it's a very difficult issue. I mean, people who get to nursing homes, the entry into nursing homes is of people who have got... Yeah, they're not well, they're, usually. They're yeah. frail-aged yeah. people yeah. or people with uh, complex chronic illnesses. So... It is understandable that those people are coming towards the end of their life and if that's made a bit earlier, it's not an unreasonable thing to say how huge that is compared to, say, a five-year-old who dies. So it's an understandable emotional response, Mm. but it's also, this is somebody, a person who wants to live longer, who has children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who Mm. want to be with them. So it's trying to work out the ethical issues around that. Well, we're just staying with that for a moment, and this is not the the main subject of this podcast, but it's a really interesting challenge for us all to think about this. If we cast our minds back to Newmarch House, uh, we, we we've had the head of that facility saying in the in the days after uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of it that he wished he had ordered the evacuation of ill residents to hospitals. Now, th- those residents were denied visits. Um, and I don't want to go into all the specific, spe- you know, specifics of that case because we're not equipped to do that and, you know, their inquiries and so forth. But uh, as a matter of general principle, those people were just sort of isolated inside that facility. It's hard to imagine that happening for younger people uh, who needed urgent medical care. And it was almost like there's a kind of a, an assumption that, well, they're toward the end of their life anyway, uh, and the best way of containing this is to leave them all in there and try and manage it. 
Does that make a value judgment about life? You know, at the at the uh, toward the end. Well, as you said, Mark, I I don't know the details of of what was was happening, and uh, certainly a, a serious concern about the care of the aged is about loneliness and isolation, and you cut that down further, and it's a serious concern. Mm. Uh, old people uh, live for seeing their kids and their grandchildren, and and so on, and. Uh, I think if it has been true that they have not been treated uh, reasonably and valuing those connections which are so important to them, well, then there's a serious problem. And I think the Royal Commission is identifying uh, major problems that still have to be addressed. Uh, I still say that I think the system is a lot better than it was 20 years ago, uh, but there is more resources going to be required which is going to take more taxpayers' money, but also more money from people looking to their own old age that they're going to have to put more aside for that care and support. Yes, well, I was a bit disturbed when I saw the Prime Minister say that, uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of his rhetoric's been very good on this, but uh, he made the point that, um, you know, they were dealing with a novel situation uh, in respect of, I think it was St Basil's in Victoria when they had to have the, you know, the, the complete... Um, a complete changeover of the workforce that the entire workforce had to be uh, put into into self isolation, you know, to contain the infection there, and this was a problem. I mean, clearly, that is a major logis- logistical challenge, particularly for continuity of care and keeping that facility open. But you you would have thought that that's the kind of contingency planning that ought to have been done, given what had happened with New March and given the vulnerability. So. Look, I don't ask you to comment on that. That's just me commenting on. Let's get to the substance of this because this is a special podcast in in um, in one respect, and that is that we're effectively launching this book today, or at least the Chancellor Julie Bishop is uh, launching this book today, which is why that we have both of you on here. Can I get you, Andrew, just to give us a, a brief, brief pricey of of what this book does and why you've chosen these three jurisdictions: Australia, China, and Taiwan to to make as your sort of make your comparisons? Well, the book, Mark, comes from a workshop organised by the Greater China-Australia Dialogue and Public Administration. This dialogue has hosted annual workshops since 2011 on various issues of common interest to the jurisdictions, but taking into account their very different institutional arrangements. Uh, They've fostered increasingly rich understandings of public administration, practice and development in the People's Republic of China and Taiwan by Australians, but also of Australian practice and development, understanding of that in the PRC and Taiwan. The Australian studies have also contributed to our understanding of our own practices and development. So there's a lot there that's good for Australians about Australia. The workshops, nonetheless, the whole premise has been to try and build a rich understanding of each other. And we've had a, a series of publications now come out of these workshops. Three symposiums of papers have been published in the Australian Journal of Public Administration. A symposium was published earlier this year in the Australian Journal of Social Issues. And now we have two ANU press books come out of our workshops. And there'll be a further symposium published in a journal, the Australian the Asia-Pacific Journal of Public Administration, later in the year. This is a very rich amount of material talking about what is going on in the three jurisdictions, what is current practice, but what are the reform trajectories underway. In this second uh, ANU press book, the first one was called Value for Money, and it looked at financial management and budget reforms in the three jurisdictions. Uh, Interestingly, uh, all three have been looking at financial management reform and budget reform not only for accountability, but for better performance. Uh, performance for results has been a sort of a catchphrase here in Australia for uh, nigh on 30 years, but that is also a term used frequently in the other two jurisdictions. And there's been very substantial reforms in both Taiwan and in China, and in PRC. Uh, we have an enviable record in that area uh, going back to the 1980s and 1990s, But the PRC and Taiwan have been following suit more recently, but within their own institutional arrangements. 
one of the things about the Australian reforms which we which which struck us was uh, the financial management and budget reforms were associated also with structural changes. So, for example, we had contracting out, we had privatisation and commercialisation, we had the purchaser provider splits uh, in areas such as the way we handle hospitals. So, very big structural changes. So, we decided to have a, a workshop on structural issues and whether structures can contribute to performance and accountability as well. And so, that was why the second book came out of a workshop on this on this second issue. The truth is that we have done a lot in that space in Australia, but both the PRC and Taiwan have done less so, and that was one of the points that, that came out of, of the book. Can, can I just clarify something? I'll, I'll stop you there and just ask this question because I, I imagine a lot of people are thinking this as they're, as they're hearing about the, the comparisons between these systems. They are so different, particularly the difference between Australia and China um, in terms of the system of governance. Um, how, how, does that, how does that affect making useful comparisons? It has an enormous effect. They are uh, the institutional arrangement with China's party-state authoritarian arrangement. So when we talk about our structural changes here within our system, uh, we have as a premise that there's a distinction between politics and administration. Yes. And the structural changes are within the administrative arm, uh, which has oversight from the political arm. Uh, China, they don't have that politics and administration separation. So when they talk about accountability, it's not the same sort of sense that we talk about accountability. And similarly, when they talk about performance, uh, they don't have this distinction between politicians and bureaucrats. Uh, they are all members of the cadre. And so performance management is a mixture of politics and administrative aspects. So you do have to appreciate that, and that shapes these underlying arrangements. Is it good for us to appreciate that? I mean, in a, in, is, there, is there a utility for Australian policymakers and administrators to understand that uh, rather than which is a separate question from having a view about whether it's desirable or not, but really to understand the forces, uh, the, 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 the logic, the thinking that, that, that motivates that system? We'll come to a bit more of that a bit later, later in our discussion. But yes, in, indeed. I mean, it's hugely important given the extent to which we engage with China to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. How do they make their decisions? What are their processes? What are the changes going on? Where do we think they might be heading over the next few years? So you need to understand how they see themselves, how their own structures work. And we have now been going for 10 years in these annual workshops trying to find out uh, a better understanding of exactly how it works or how it doesn't work, uh, and what are the pros and cons of what they're doing. Now, Andrew, can I ask, um, what have you learnt about Australia through this comparison between uh, Taiwan and China that um, that would not have occurred to you had you not engaged in this kind of comparative exercise? In terms of these issues of structures, not a great deal, to be honest, but in some other areas we've looked at, quite a lot. For example, we had a workshop on urban governance uh, two years ago. Uh, when you look at the scale of what urbanisation means in China, uh, the way in which they have handled you know, 500 million people moving into cities over 25 years, uh, what are the structures they've used for that, uh, the decision-making, but also what's the project management? So there are issues around planning and project management which while they don't have to worry about the politics we have, there's an expertise there which is formidable and, and is worth looking at. But on this particular one uh, workshop, uh, I don't think there's a great deal for us to learn from China and Taiwan for ourselves, but there's a great deal to learn about the way they do things that we need to understand in our engagement with China. Let's take a quick break there and come back and uh, explore this further. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Julie Bishop, um, Andrew Podger was talking just before the break about the the different systems and how much we learn. You're one of Australia's most experienced diplomats and politicians before you uh, were you know, promoted to the role of Chancellor of, uh, of the ANU. Um, how important is understanding uh, the, the systems of other countries and particularly such a crucial country as, as China. How important is it to understand it rather than just start from the, the, the proposition that our system is better and their system is, is no good and, um, and, and to kind of, you know, proceed from that basis? I think this is an extremely timely publication in that it gives us a granular insight, if you like, into three jurisdictions uh, two are of vital importance to Australia, both China and uh, Chinese Taipei, Taiwan. And at a time when Australia's relationship with our largest trading partner in China is entering an era, I suggest, of greater complexity and challenge, and in geostrategic terms, when China appears to be taking a far more assertive, even hostile approach to territorial disputes and the like, it's so important that we understand what is going on in China. We often talk about our bilateral relationship in terms of how different our political systems are, yet how we always align on the economic front. You know, we're a democracy, representative government, they're an authoritarian government. But what this publication does is give us a, a level of appreciation and understanding of what that difference actually means. It's vital for political leaders as well as business leaders who assume that China will act or react in a particular way to understand mm. the way they make decisions and why. And otherwise it can lead to enormous miscalculations, misjudgments um, on a number of fronts, and I think we've seen that. So it's very important to understand how public administration works in Australia and what we can expect compared with other jurisdictions. It's really hard, isn't it, for uh, for. for- Companies doing business in China, uh, where they've got uh, established relationships with their business partners uh, in the PRC, um, to, I suppose, to to kind of separate out the politics from from and, and you know from administration and from decisions, and also I guess from the uh, from the actions of individual corporations with which they might be dealing. That's hard enough as it is, and then overlaid on top of that, you have. Quite significant, as you said, we're entering an era of greater complexity. You have quite significant signals being given from time to time from the political leadership in Beijing, and you know, you, if you're doing business with China, you've got to you've got to somehow reconcile all of that with whatever Australia's uh, you know attitude is, whatever its responses might be. It's a to borrow from uh, Tony Abbott's language, it's a, it's a witch's brew of complexity in a way, isn't it? Well, that's right, and there has been a shift in the stance of the federal government to be more openly critical of the Chinese government. Um, some have sought to characterise it as a triumph of security over trade, but it's far more complex than that. And it is sometimes difficult for our business leaders to appreciate, understand or even accept uh, the foreign policy or trade imperatives of the federal government compared with what they're seeking to do on the ground in terms of uh, trade. And, uh, of course, the Morrison government hasn't taken any steps to limit trade with China other than in areas of direct relevance to national security, such as the ban on Huawei and 5G networks. But I recall spending quite some time explaining to business leaders that uh, we in government take advice from the security agencies, from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, 
and then it's up to the Prime Minister, the National Security Committee and the Cabinet to adopt policies informed by that advice. And I think where there is tension between security concerns and economics, the important thing is for political leaders to have thought through the potential range of consequences of any actions. And, you know, like, let's just take an example. Should China follow through on threats to impose penalties on various commodity exports, I assume that the Australian government has anticipated that and is willing to bear the economic and political cost. So our business leaders um, often need to be informed of why our government is acting in a particular way and why the Chinese government will act or react in a particular way. If I could come in, uh, yeah, go uh, on. Mark, I think it's very important to realise how different China is today than in under Mao and that while President Xi Jinping is taking a firmer control with the party at the moment, it's not Mao-type control. And there are a lot of other things going on underneath and what comes out in our books and our publications is that there is a considerable debate going on in parts of China. Uh, fundamentally, there is a contradiction in China in talking about its socialist market economy. It's a contradiction in terms. Yes. And it is still trying to work out. It's easy to talk about where it's come from. It's very hard to say where it's going to end up. Uh, but these discussions that us understanding these discussions going on are very important. So that on the one hand, they have undertaken reforms of their state-owned enterprises. They have pursued more professional delivery of public services and they've begun to use civil society in the delivery of civil services. Is there an efficiency uh, drive like there is in public administration in societies like, like ours that we understand? Is there the same kind of drive to greater efficiency uh, in in the administration of policy in China? Yes, there is, but you've got to understand the scale of the change. Uh, they've gone from uh, a total socialist arrangement to a market economy, which has required the government to rethink what its role is. It's had to develop programs on health and hospitals, programs on social security. didn't have any because that was all left to the collectives to manage all of that. The world welfare was done by the by the collective or, or the SOE. Uh, so they've had to build that in and build up processes how to make sure that that works and is efficient and effective. But at the same time, this contradiction is that the, the, they are still a party-state system and Xi Jinping is trying to strengthen the party controls. But within the changes that they've They've got, you can see, even though politics and administration are unified, you can see they are trying to professionalise their delivery of hospitals, universities and so on. So you're getting this debate going on, well, where do we end up with this? How are we going? And that's the engagement that we are most keen to explore with them. So, Andrew, can I ask, I mean, what does um, civil society engagement in the in, in China look like compared to how our bureaucracies um, engage? Because, I mean, if you're a casual observer of... Um, the news coming out of China, that is that is not what you would expect to hear. If I talked about civil society uh, 15 years ago, uh, the only civil society would have been under total party control. There was a double system of regulation and approval to have a civil society, whether it be a business association or an aged care arrangement or whatever. There are now millions of organisations that are non-government. But under Xi Jinping, he's now brought back in that they are to have a party branch within their organisation. So you're getting, on the one hand, liberalisation, and on the other hand, a reassertion of party control. But it is not anything like the degree of independence we expect of our non-government sector, but it is a huge change from what there was 20 years ago. Andrew, it's interesting you um, talk about China as a market economy, and of course it is, and it entered the World Trade Organization. And at that time, I think nations around the world expected China to be a more open uh, society generally. I think people expected there to be um, a political reform as well. Uh, if it was going to subject itself to international laws and protocols, we were going to be seeing an opening up of the, uh, of the political system. But of course, that didn't happen. And China has a different view, perhaps, of anti-dumping, of tariffs, protectionism, intellectual property and the like. 
And while pre-COVID, we assumed that uh, the United States and China would seek to negotiate a free trade agreement, which might cover over some of these fractures. That, of course, has not occurred. And now the United States and China are further apart than ever before. And there's even talk of a decoupling uh, between the US and China, particularly in the technology sector. So again, I think that it's other nations' expectations of what they think reform in China means, um, whereas that's not in fact the case. Yes, that's been one of the most interesting um, kind of revelations, I suppose, that slowly come upon us over over recent years is the extent to which that 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 vanity, I suppose you could call it, of uh, assuming that our system has this this kind of overweening logic to it, and that when you open up a society, when well, sorry, when you develop a society, when you give it the economic heft that uh, China has has been rapidly amassing, that with that would come some of the other uh, aspects of an open society. But I think what we failed to factor in there, apart from you know political cultural factors, was the role of technology as well, because we've seen China become, in a sense, a techno-authoritarian state. I mean, the, the ability that it now has for the surveillance of its own people is vastly increased just by virtue of the development of that technology. So you would say uh, in terms of individual freedom, it hasn't got better, it's got worse in recent years. Well, I think you've got to be very careful on this. I think that under Xi Jinping, things have gone backwards uh, on a range of these reforms. But it is still not like the era of Mao. The, the travel capacity of people in China today is totally different from what it was in the 70s. Uh, the communication arrangements, the access to uh, international forums, the number of students who are going around the world for their education, it is a very different society. I do think there are real concerns about what Xi Jinping is doing, but I suspect that those things he's doing are mounting up problems for himself down the track. Why has China become so rich? It's become rich because it has embraced markets, it's embraced trade, it's embraced decentralization, allowing different provinces to do different things within China. It's broken down the, the collectives, it's given people opportunities to pursue their own personal self-interest and individualism. These things have happened. They're not going to be lie down and see them taken away if, in fact, they don't continue to get richer. And I think there's a real problem that they will not get richer if they keep on going down this route of reimposing controls. So there's a dilemma there, and we should be engaging with China to say to them, I, is what you're doing at the moment really in your own self-interest? It's not only a concern to us, but to engage with people in China saying, do you really think this helps yourselves to do the sorts of things you are doing? Julie, we seem some way away from that at the moment, don't we? As you as you mentioned, the, the, the relationship is highly problematic at the moment um, and it, it doesn't feel like uh, there's, there's going to be a breakthrough in that soon. Australia has, as you said, uh, kind of hardened its attitude and its rhetoric much more frank about uh, you know what we object to and what we don't but nonetheless your your successor in the foreign affairs portfolio Maurice Payne has made the statement that uh, Australia respects you know the relationship and would certainly not want to do anything to harm it so it's a fine line to tread isn't it it's a difficult diplomatic line to tread to be saying we respect the relationship we don't want to do it any harm but we are going to stand up more forthrightly for what we believe to be our interest yes it has been uh, very interesting to watch the change in language and um, the government adopting a, a posture of overt public criticism uh, i think there are many considerations feeding into that judgment including some long-term concerns about the increasingly aggressive attitude of the Chinese government. I mean, it's now been dubbed wolf warrior diplomacy, but one thing mm. is certain, we've entered an era of greater complexity. And I think the key for Australia is to have a clear-eyed view of our interests in the short, medium and long term. We have to have thought through all the possible scenarios and then respond in a way appropriate to our national interests. 
what we need to avoid is ad hoc or reactionary stances that lack consistency. I think that demonstrates a weakness. But I've been focusing somewhat on um, China's more hostile approach to territorial disputes. Uh, They seem to be picking fights on several fronts, uh, whether it's um, India or Hong Kong or um, most certainly the South China Sea. And it's impossible to know for certain, but one school of thought is that Xi Jinping is under pressure over the initial response to the pandemic and he needed a show of strength. And there may have been concerns about social stability, which, of course, is always the number one issue for China's leadership, and they need issues to rally everyone around the flag. A second school of thought is that the Chinese leadership judged that other nations were distracted by the pandemic and they sought to take some sort of advantage of that. I think it's if the if it's the second, I'd regard that as a misjudgment as it has galvanised a number of nations against them and hardened attitudes in many parts of the world. But I do note that the Prime Minister's language about, for example, China's illegal actions um, now in the South China Sea didn't extend to undertaking freedom of navigation exercises to test that position. So uh, I think what we are waiting for now is whether or not China will follow through on threats uh, in relation to students, in relation to tourists. And, of course, that's being masked at present because no one can travel to Australia anyway. So we can't test uh, China's attitude towards Australia in terms of students coming here or tourists coming here. But we might see um, some penalties on various commodities and it might also be that China is just currently uh, reorganising supply chains. Um, and at some point, you know, they might be seeking to impose restrictions on Australian imports um, at some later time. It'll come in under the guise of food quality or permit errors or something like that, just because they mm-hmm. haven't followed through with a significant immediate response to issues like Australia calling for an international inquiry into the handling of coronavirus by China with nuclear weapons inspector powers. I mean, China saw that as a provocative threat to its sovereignty, Of course, any international inspection of Chinese facilities within China's borders would have needed China's agreement or a Security Council resolution. And with China on the Security Council, that was never going to happen. But I think we should be conscious of the fact that uh, China do target areas that they believe will be political sensitive to the target government, although they are very careful not to inflict damage on their own economy. That decision to to front-run on that inquiry uh, about Wuhan and the the uh, origins of the COVID virus uh, was that was it? I mean, we could have supported. I don't think anyone's arguing there shouldn't be this investigation into what lessons can be learned in terms of the uh, the, the breaking of this virus into the into the human population and and uh, what measures were initially taken. No one's arguing that shouldn't happen. But did Australia need to be the country, given our closeness, our economic interdependence? Did Australia need to be the country that was seen to be leading that? I'm not sure that we've had a detailed response from the government on that. Uh, I was surprised. Of course, there are uh, criticisms of the World Health Organization that is heavily backed by uh, China, and uh, I think those criticisms are well-founded. If you didn't have a World Health Organization, though, you'd have to create one. It didn't live up to expectations over this global pandemic, and, of course, there will be an inquiry into the WHO. And also one would expect there to be an inquiry or um, a lessons learned or some kind of research into how this virus got away. And without doubt, China's involvement would come under scrutiny. But I think it was the use of the phrase, we needed nuclear weapons inspector powers. And of course, nuclear weapons inspectors don't go into any country without that country's um, agreement and consent, or indeed under a Security Council resolution well, neither of those were going to happen. What we have now is um, an inquiry that was led by the European Union and we backed the European Unions, which, of course, involved the WHO and involved China's consent, neither of which Australia thought were necessary, it seems. Yes, I did find that rather odd. Can I just quickly turn also to the recent uh, visit by the Defence Minister and and the Foreign Minister to Washington, which only occurred in recent days? There's been a fair bit of uh, commentary about this. Uh, m- a lot of it's arguing about nuance, of course, but 
was it a case in your in your view, Julie Bishop, of um, standing close to the U.S. in order to stress some critical differences, or and and and, di- and is there a risk? Was there always a risk, and is there an ongoing risk of getting dragged into the domestic political considerations of the Trump administration, which seem to be uh, ramping up all the time? I didn't find the language of this Osmin Australia-U.S. ministerial dialogue to be far removed from that in the past. I mean, the sort of uh, language that I would have used as foreign minister, indeed my counterparts, whether it be John Kerry or Rex Tillerson or Mike Pompeo would have used. Uh, What I thought was interesting is that we didn't, again, uh, undertake to be part of freedom of navigation exercises throughout the South China Sea, and I know that that is something that the United States would request unless that it's suggested to them that they shouldn't request it because they'll get a no. But I, I think, you know, the increasing tension between the United States and China uh, is a challenge for many nations, not just Australia. Of course, it's a bipartisan position in Washington. Uh, a recent Senate vote on Hong Kong passed 100 to 0, which is remarkable in the polarised political climate in the United States at present. So, you know, we're seeing actions like closing consulates. I mean, that's a very serious matter. Uh, It would be regarded as provocative by any nation. Um, The Trump administration must have had some pretty compelling evidence that China was using the location to engage in intelligence gathering beyond the usual norms of such activity. But the the tensions between the US and China are increasing. Um, Of course, that raises questions for Australia. How do we continue to balance uh, the position of our largest trading partner with our largest defence, strategic and intelligence ally. I think there are going to be lulls and flare-ups in all relationships um, as events transpire, but as long as Australia continues to be clear, coherent in our positioning in backing Australia's national interest, we'll continue to balance those challenging relationships. Julie, could I, could I ask? Um, it's often sort of said that, uh, like, Australian public discourse is not um, very well geared to talk about foreign policy. Um, you know, it, it's not really the focus of our politics. So, for, for interested listeners out there, could you suggest like one or two things that they they really should know or they really should check out for those of those wanting to really kind of up their engagement level on these sort of subjects? Well, I believe we all need a greater understanding of the nations in our region. Uh, not just the Australia-China relationship. We have many relationships that impact on our life, our standard of living, our um, economic resilience here, uh, whether it be uh, Australia-Indonesia, Australia-Singapore, our relationship with other countries throughout the uh, Southeast Asian region, an understanding of Australia's relationship with China and balancing our interests with the United States, an understanding of why uh, the United States is our only, apart from New Zealand, our only um, strategic and defence ally, an understanding of our relationship with Japan. I mean, all our our most significant trading partners are in the Indian Ocean, Asia Pacific, and that's why we need to focus so heavily on ensuring that we have uh, mutually beneficial relationships with these countries. Also, an appreciation that Australia is an open export-oriented market economy. We don't have a big enough population as the United States or others have to just rely on domestic consumption. We have to sell our goods and services around the world to maintain economic growth. And so a a clear-eyed understanding of why we need to be part of the global economy as opposed to, you know, just putting up the putting up the um, borders as we've done for COVID. But once this is all over, why we need to be part of the global economy and have to maintain good relationships with nations around the world, even though they might not align with our values and, and our certainly our political systems, which comes back to Andrew's book. Can I make a couple of comments on this, Julie and Mark uh, and Maria? Um, I... I very much agree with Julie's point about the importance of of a coherent, consistent approach. But we've got to make sure we don't, in doing that, see things through simply through an ideological prism. Sure. We need to be pragmatic. We need to deal with each of the issues, issues by issue, and then in each of those work with other countries as well. You mentioned Japan. I would think also of India, Indonesia, 
Vietnam, Philippines, trying to clarify on the issues of concern to us how we're going to handle them and not bundle everything together uh, in an ideological way. The other comment I'd, comments I'd make that we should be promoting where our interests are shared, including with China, uh, that there are debates within China and we should be trying to work to get them to see that some of the things they're doing are not necessarily in their long-term interests and work on that. And finally, while we should certainly stand by our values, we should be careful not to preach. We're not necessarily the, 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 we don't necessarily have the model that would work in China. We don't necessarily have the model that would work in other places. We've got to recognise different countries will go their own paths. And even if it would work, we should just I accept still that like, we're not going to get it happening. I would still like them to be much more transparent, a of lot course. more political reform, a lot of things that could happen there. Uh, but to suggest that somehow we have the superior arrangement that ought to be just simply replicated is just not true. That kind of neocon sort of naivety that uh, um, has governed foreign policy, failed foreign policies in the past. Well, not Mark, ours necessarily, but Mark, go on, Julie. Mark, with all the humility I can muster, I think mandatory reading for any Australian wanting to understand um, the importance of striking the right note is the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper. I, th- I agree. I, th- I agree. <laughs> I think we've got it right there. We balanced our values and our interests. We set out a blueprint for the next ten years. I mean, you can't you can't guess the future. Who would have thought we'd be in the middle of a global pandemic? But nevertheless, if you can set out a framework of Australia's values and interests and um, how we should react or can react in a coherent way, um, it, it makes for pretty good reading. I think we struck the right note. I think you're right, Julie. What's concerning me at the moment is that there are some who are saying we shouldn't do that engagement. We should just simply be pressing our values and our own interests and and dismissing anything from China. And I think that's a big mistake. Very very short-term thinking, if that's the view. Yes, and naive, I suspect, as well. Um, now, look, this has been a terrific discussion. There's so much in uh, in all of these subjects and, uh, of course, a lot of reading uh, in the book, uh, Designing Governance Structures for Performance and Accountability Developments in Australia and Greater China, and uh, that is uh, well worth reading. It's from ANU Press. Uh, um, Julie Bishop's been along to launch it, uh, which we've done effectively here on this uh, on this podcast. So thank you, Chancellor Julie Bishop. Thank you, Honorary Professor Andrew Podger, and to Dr. Maria Tafaga, who's on this podcast every week. Uh, thank you all for being on. Thank you very much. Very much enjoyed, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to formally launch this book. I wish I could have been there in person, but we'll do it virtually online. And to everyone, keep safe. Thank you very much, Julie, and thank you, Maria. Um, And we'll be back with a Democracy Sausage Extra later in the week. Uh, Until then, bye for now. 